My name, by the way, is Matt. Um, I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City. It's my privilege to be with us this morning. Today, we're going to talk about some hard stuff. So I've got two important things to say before we begin. And first, that is that we are fallen people who live in a broken world. That means we're each broken, right? We're part of the problem. We get life wrong. We get stuff wrong. We mess things up. But we're also victims of this brokenness too, hurt, um, wounded by it. Um, I know some of some people's stories, and I know sometimes these wounds are grave. Second, the gospel commits Hope City to being a church, which is a community of grace. None of us has earned our place here by our good behavior or our excellent performance. Instead, we're all gifted our place by grace through faith in Jesus' death. We all stand here on the same ground. Nobody's coming here as a winner who's got it all right. So... When you hear what Jesus has to say today, whether that puts the spotlight on your own wounds or puts the spotlight on your own brokenness, I want to tell you that you're loved, um, that you're welcome, um, that we're one family, and that we're going to try and care for one another well as we figure this out and as God keeps working on us as a church family. So today we're looking at the next section of Jesus' teaching famous teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been thinking and talking about this as him setting out his blueprint for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom which is coming, the kingdom that he is bringing, the kingdom that's drawn near, the good and right kingdom that we're meant to long for. Now we've seen how the kingdom's only possible because of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, right? He gives up his life And he transforms our hearts. God is going to change the world out there. Bring this new and right kingdom by changing things first in here. We've been talking about this as the blueprint for his kingdom of transformed hearts. Jesus' blueprint for his kingdom of transformed hearts. And we've seen that kingdom is about inside-out righteousness as a result. It's about green shoots springing up in the barren ground of our lives, from the transformed heart that God has planted in us underneath. And Jesus says the only way into his kingdom is through this surpassing righteousness. And surpassing righteousness is an inside-out righteousness, rather than an outside-in righteousness, one you just paint on the surface. Last week, Alex helped us to unpack Jesus' teaching on the heart of the law's command, do not murder. He showed us that that inside-out righteousness demands we, we don't just stop at murder, but we take aim at anger that is root. Take aim at harsh words, the root of division. Take aim at anger, which is ultimately the root of murder. Where we failed, where our anger is broken out in harsh words, in division, where it's damaged relationships, Jesus taught us that we are to pursue reconciliation. Well, this week, we're going to try and begin to unpack Jesus' teaching on the heart of the Lord's command, do not commit adultery. Now, there is some tricky stuff in here, but we're going to work our way through it together. So we're going to read, and you might like to have a Bible open so you can read along with us and refer back to it. We're in Matthew's Gospel. It's in chapter 5, and we're starting at verse 27, and that's page 969 in the Blue Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27, and Susie, I believe, is going to read for us this morning. Hi, everyone. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thanks, Susie. Now, if you don't have questions already, I'm going to be pretty shocked. Um, and do feel free to ask questions along the way. We will have some time to respond to those later on. So what do you do with something like this? Well, first up, you see that marriage is going out of fashion pretty amazingly quickly. It's becoming obsolete at a rate of knots. Here's a chart for you. This is how marriage rates have developed in the UK since the 1970s. Before that, it was fairly stable. This is plotting the number of marriages per 1,000 single males in blue and 1,000 single females in pink. Very stereotyped color choices from my part. Sorry about that in advance. Now... If these trends continue, then by about 2040, it's going to be less than 10 in 1,000, less in 1 in 100 singles who will marry each year. And that's down from 6 to 8, less, to less than 1. Like in, in my lifetime, it's dropped by a factor of 8. That is an, a huge change, a staggering job. Now, why, why has this changed? There are lots of factors. Firstly, marriages are increasingly failing leaving people single again. 2013, quite old data, 42% of UK marriages ended in divorce. And that's only been rising. And if marriages fail, you can understand why people would think, why bother in the first place? At least you'd be best off to try before you buy, right? But, but then if you're trying before you buy, do you ever really need a wedding? Weddings are expensive. Rings are expensive. So many more people are just going ahead and living together for the long term. Now, changing social attitudes towards cohabiting, towards single-parent families, which is now one in four families in the UK, mean that many just don't see the point of marriage in the first place anymore. If you, if you don't need it, but you can cohabit, if it doesn't work or last anyway... Now, it's a complex topic, right? There's, there's more going on, particularly as you look across different cultures and... Uh, things, but the, the, the big picture is marriage is increasingly belonging to the past, and it's not just marriage which is going that way in decline. There's something much bigger. The, the idea that really there are any rules or boundaries at all seems increasingly alien, increasingly archaic to most people. It's like a, a prudish idea from some bygone era, and maybe it feels that way to you too this morning. Um, many people from our culture would say, well, consenting adults get up to behind closed doors is none of anyone else's business so long as no one gets hurt. Well, if that's where you are this morning, if that's what you're coming from, and there are many, many people in that camp, I'm really glad that you've listened and stuck with me this far. I'm really glad you're here. Um, great to listen, to think about what Jesus has to say, but I understand this is hugely countercultural stuff that we're talking about. So when Jesus says in his coming kingdom that it's not just the end game of adultery breaking a rule related to an apparently outdated concept called marriage that's a problem. But actually, God has an issue, even with a lustful heart, even with a lustful look. Now, that is not an easy pill to swallow. 
when he suggests that sort of transgression can see you thrown into hell, that, like, that's shocking. That's a major problem. Here's a sobering fact. Half the UK's adult population watched online pornography in September 2020. Fully a half of adults. Now, if that's not about lustful looks and about lustful hearts, I don't know what is. And Jesus' standard is so much higher than just don't watch porn. When, according to Jesus, our world has a really big problem. But if we wanted to pretend for just one moment that this is a problem out there for other people, we'd be totally kidding ourselves. The truth is this is a major problem for many followers of Jesus, too, probably in truth for most of us. Last week in our quick poll, we broadly felt we could probably manage not to murder someone, which was reassuring. Right? About, about 60% of people felt that uh, that was not going to be the one they broke if they were going to break something, which is 60% reassuring, I guess. I should feel glad to have made it this far. But when, when Jesus tells us that Anger in the heart is the root of murder. It's a much bigger problem. So maybe adultery is no problem for you. Maybe it feels remote and irrelevant. Maybe it feels like no issue for you. But when Jesus tells us the heart of this is lust, then it is a much bigger problem. When Jesus opens the door on adultery and he shows us inside and he he tells us like a, a man... Lusting after a married woman has already breached God's good design, has already committed adultery in thought, in the heart. That's what he does here. If we're being tight and specific, that's what it's about. A man and a married woman. Or we'd be a fool to just put those tight and narrow limits around the kinds of lust that God hates. If we pretend it's only exactly that one case that he spells out here, only a problem around marriage, we'd be doing that at precisely the moment Jesus is telling us, do not commit adultery is so much bigger. We take it so much bigger and we narrow it down? That's crazy. It's any selfish wanting of another, any wanting outside of God's design, any wanting apart from faithfulness that's the essence of this command. Wanting even just in our heart, not wanting only that's acted out. Jesus' kingdom blueprint, his standard is going to be a problem for many of us. For most of us. Just like it's a problem for the world outside. Now, maybe you don't come from a Christian background. Maybe this all seems crazy to you. Like God is just anti-sex or mega unnecessarily restrictive. But if Jesus is talking about his kingdom, then it follows that he's the king. And if he's the king, he gets to make the agenda, define how things are going to work. There's no place you could possibly have in his kingdom without accepting him as the king. So if you want to think about Jesus' kingdom, you have to wrestle with what the king has to say, what he puts on the table. And as much as what Jesus lays out here is a big problem, an extremely high standard... Perhaps at the same time, if you're feeling that this is so restrictive, this is so hard, perhaps you can actually see also a little of the potential, a little of the beauty even of a kingdom whose blueprint calls for such purity, for such faithfulness, because that is what Jesus is setting out here. He's setting out purity and faithfulness. Imagine this. Do you imagine you never needed to wonder about the fidelity of any of those around you? 
Like whether that's your partner or your parents or your friends. Would you like to never have to face the heartbreak of watching a family torn apart as a couple separate? Imagine never having a doubt for your safety or the safety of your daughter walking across the city at night. When somebody looks at you, this doesn't happen to me, but when somebody looks at you, would you never like to question what's going on in their mind? Do you wish not one single person in the world was trapped and exploited for others' pleasure, whether that's viewing or doing? That's what this blueprint for purity and faithfulness would mean when it's fulfilled, what it will mean when it is fulfilled. This is Jesus' design for his coming kingdom, and it's a good design. It's a beautiful design. It's a righteous design. The, the, The problem we've got is how could people like us ever live there? That's the problem we've got. How could we ever get there? First, we've got to see that law doesn't work, right? You shall not commit adultery, says the law. Fair enough, we said, all right. But aha, uh-huh. it's, it's not adultery if there's no marriage, so we just need a divorce and the problem's solved, right? That, that's why I think Jesus introduces divorce in this context. It's not his main point here, but that's why I think it, it comes here in verse 31 and 32. As he's talking about the heart of this commandment, in essence, what he's saying in these two verses at the end of what we read this morning is, don't think you've kept the command against adultery. If you're using divorce as a means to get what would otherwise be adultery, as a means to justify and gratify your lust. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been quoting from the Jewish religious law, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Here, it has been said anyone who divorces her wife must give her a a certificate of divorce. That, That doesn't come from the law. It just comes from the standard practice of Jesus' day. Instead, it's what was said. In his day, divorce was the exclusive right of the husband. It was seemingly pretty common, seemingly pretty easy. There were a range of views on how high the, heart, the bar had to be to get a divorce from burning the bread to an affair. But it was pretty easy. Uh, if you've got one of those blue Bibles, you'll see next to this, anyone who has his, uh, divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. You'll see a tiny F footnote that points to Deuteronomy 24. But if you turned there, and if you read carefully, you wouldn't find quite the same thing. It's showing you that it's related to Deuteronomy 24, but it's not a quote of Deuteronomy 24. The Jewish religious law, what it does in Deuteronomy is it regulates divorce. It sets some boundaries. It says, if this happens... Here are some limits, here are some protections, here are some defenses, but it certainly doesn't command it. Just lost my slide controller, just need that back. Come back, slide controller. Excellent. It doesn't even directly permit it. It just says what to do if it happens, right? If a man marries and there's a divorce and he sends her away, this is what This is what should happen next. It doesn't clearly set out the grounds that could warrant a divorce. And Jesus is being really clear here that lust for another person is absolutely not grounds for divorce. And I think that helps us understand 32, which is one of the harder verses kicking around here. If an illegitimate divorce, trying to justify lust doesn't work, if you file all the paperwork, if you like, and it might seem to be in order, but it doesn't actually mean anything, then the apparently divorced couple are still really married. So it's still adultery for the man. 
The divorced wife is the, the victim of that adultery, which, by the way, is enormously countercultural. It's a hugely countercultural statement for Jesus to say that a woman could be a victim of this. See, although it's unthinkable now, in the culture of that day, wives were basically regarded as the possession of their husband, and adultery was seen, seen as the, the violation of that exclusive possession. So when, when Jesus says the wife becomes the victim of adultery, he's overturning that picture. He's showing us both male and female have rights and responsibilities in marriage. Now, the very last phrase, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, is really difficult. Two potential ways for you to understand that. First, it could be saying anyone who marries the illegitimately divorced woman would be committing adultery because she's still effectively married. That illegitimate divorce doesn't work. But it's not a general statement in that case. It's a statement about what happens after that sort of illegitimate divorce. Can I get in that time? No slide change for me. Can I get the next slide, Helen? Thank you. My remote control is less remotely controlling. Perfect. Second way you could understand this, it could be saying a man who breaks somebody else's marriage, causing an illegitimate divorce, it's still adultery. If that's the right way to read it, what you'd have then is Jesus first talks about a married man divorcing his wife to have somebody else. And second talks about a single man breaking another marriage so he can have that person. Do you see the two ways you could understand this? There's two ways you might be able to understand that. Either way, what this is doing is underlining the key things these verses tell us. It is an illegitimate divorce if the divorce is intended to justify what would otherwise be a breach of God's law, what would otherwise be adultery. Now, this is a big, a complicated, a sensitive subject, right? I'm only touching on it. I'm very conscious this might bring big things to the surface for some. And like I said at the start, we live in a broken world where we're both victims of that and we're authors of that. And we're committed to being a community of grace and care, whatever your story. So I want you to know that you're welcome. Jesus returns to this topic of divorce in a later chapter. So we'll speak about it again. But if you have questions or concerns in the meantime, then the elders have tried to set out our position as fully as we can in our public policies, um, which you should be able to see here. You can see exactly what we think. You can see how we got there from the Bible. And I really encourage you to read and consider all of the Bible's teaching carefully for yourself. To come talk to any of us in confidence or come and talk to the pastoral support team if you want to know more or you want to speak more about issues related to this. But I want to take us back to where we're focused primarily today. I think although Jesus touches on divorce here, it's primarily because this is one of our sneaky ways of trying to get around the letter of the law. It's not adultery if there's no marriage, we think. That's our, our typical human evasion, our typical response when it comes to the law. We look for ways around. We look for limits. We look for excuses, like, like we do with tax rules or contracts, or agreements. We're looking for the loophole, the way to get what we want anyway. But if we're saying law doesn't work, then when Jesus gives us a sharper and clearer law, is that going to be any different? Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart? 
Now, the Pharisees, who were often Jesus' opponents, made their livings out of putting fences around the law and then fences around those fences around the law so you wouldn't accidentally trip over the law. Do, do more fences change anything? Well, apparently not. It almost seems to have the opposite result, like, like a moth drawn to a flame. Do not push this button. We're like, ah, ah, I want to. If, if you're on the urge... I don't think what Jesus is doing here is just giving us more laws around the laws, just giving us fences. I think he's showing us the heart of the law all along. Remember, it is a good and wonderful, righteous heart to the law. It's trying to produce a good and a right world. It describes a pure people who are pure in heart, a faithful people who keep their commitments. The problem isn't so much with the law like we've been talking about in the past weeks. The problem is not about having the right rules to follow. The problem is about having the right heart to follow with. And we have to bear that in mind as we come to these next extreme sounding instructions that Jesus gives us. I actually think these next set of instructions are really designed to lead us to this same conclusion that it's not about the rules, but about the heart. If you were listening to Jesus, if you were there on the mountain and he was chatting away, you were feeling attracted to this kingdom of purity, of faithfulness, of righteousness then you might imagine the two pictures he gives his listeners as practical, if extreme, are actually ways he intends you to pursue it, right? If your, if your eye is the problem, gouge it out, throw it away. If your hand's the problem, cut it off, throw it away. If I really want this, this wonderful, beautiful kingdom of righteousness, I better go get a knife and a spoon, right? Committed? Absolutely. Aggressive? These are aggressive solutions. Uh, effective? Well, not necessarily. Here's the thing. When, when the root problem is lost in here, in the heart, even gouge out an eye isn't a fence high enough to keep us back. Gouge out your right eye, Jesus says. Some people argue that's because it's the best one or the most important one. But think about this. Gouge out your right eye. If you lose your right eye, well, you still got your left. Like, is your left eye really less problematic for you? Was the problem really that eye? Is the problem really solved without it? Or even without both eyes, for that matter? Would that really solve the problem? You cannot unsee things you've seen. And anyway, we've got this imagination that can start from just concepts and build something worse in our mind than anything you could ever encounter in reality. I wonder really here if Jesus isn't just leading his listeners to the same conclusion that it is apparently hopeless, this pursuit of a pure and a righteous and a faithful kingdom that's apparently hopeless. Even, even cutting out an eye, even cutting off a hand isn't going to do it. The surpassing righteousness the kingdom demands goes even beyond that. Want this kingdom of purity and faithfulness? Yeah. Well, the problem is us, you, me. The problem's deep within us. How could we ever be a part of a kingdom of purity and faithfulness when at heart we're neither? We'd just break it. We'd destroy it. We'd corrupt that kingdom the moment we showed up in it. It takes a transformed heart. The, the root to purity, the only root to purity, is a transformed heart. And that's a transformed heart which hungers and thirsts for righteousness. A transformed heart which actually wants this kingdom. A transformed heart which actually belongs in this kingdom. A transformed heart that's moved 
to follow this king from the inside out rather than the outside in. And that is exactly what God has promised us. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, but you like the sound of his kingdom, I have to tell you there's no other way into it. If you like the sound of this new heart, well, that is the gift of the king. And he stands ready to give. You just have to name him as your king to begin that journey, and you can do it right now. That's the path he invites you to walk. Maybe the truth is behind you, all you've got is rubble and ruins. And the shame and the failure that goes with that. Now, many of Jesus' followers in this room would say the same thing. Maybe you've got um, hearts that can't be mended. <clears throat> hurts that can't be mended. Maybe you've got wounds that you are always going to carry. Uh, some of the damage of life just doesn't come undone. Whether you're the author or you're the victim. Now, Jesus' death covers everything that is behind. It is settled. His life lights the path ahead. His gift of a new heart will change your life forever. Now is the time to name him your king. Uh, if you want to take a step, but you don't know how to do that practically, speak to a friend who follows Jesus today. Uh, speak to me. You can speak to me. But don't let this just pass. If you're feeling, I want that, but I don't know how to get there. Well, Jesus does know how you can get there, and he's ready. Then what if you have named Jesus your king, right? What if you have called on this promise of a new heart? What if you called on this promise of a new spirit within you? And what if you know the truth is you are still miles from pure in heart, far from faithful? Well, at Hope City, we talk about faith as a journey. Now, there's the bridge from death to life through the cross of Jesus at the heart of that journey. But there's a journey still on both sides. We are not the finished product. We haven't arrived yet. But at the same time, we need to hear Jesus loud and clear when he says this is his plan for our lives. We need to believe that he has made that fundamental change to our heart. The spirit himself is alive within us. And then we need to stand up and do something with that. Like as we started into this chunk of Jesus' teaching, if you were with us, you might remember we were talking about this not just being a long list of stuff we can't do meant to send us to Jesus to say, I can't do this, I'm sorry. It is that, by the way. But it's also stuff he actually wants us to do once we've been helped. Now, perhaps you need to hear that again this morning, right? Jesus intends for us not just to listen to what he says, but to put it into practice. Not just to listen to him, feel convicted, come to him for help, but also to work out the transformation that that help makes possible. Helen, can I get two more slides? One more after that? Thank you. This is Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There is doing to be done here. And let's not kid ourselves. It's doing that we often don't, right? Purity of heart is a mega problem. 
Lust is a mega problem. Faithfulness is a mega problem. Christian, have you failed here? Have you failed again and again? Have you failed so many times you've given up? Is it worse still? Have you been the author of others' brokenness? Now, a transformed heart knows the king's grace for where we've failed. Absolutely. We're going to share bread and wine later in our gathering, fixing our eyes on the cross where Jesus dealt with all of that for once and for all. There is true, total forgiveness. Perhaps you haven't failed here, at least not big time. But perhaps you know you are in danger. Perhaps you know you are walking close to the edge. Perhaps you know where the edge rail is and you are dangerously close. Perhaps you're on a downward trend and things are going worse and worse. Whichever of these is your story, you can't go back and change what's happened so far. But if I can get that next slide, Helen, C.S. Lewis has this great quote, you can't go back and change the beginning. But you can start where you are and change the end. You have the necessary ingredients to choose now to begin again to walk the king's path. You are called. Take every thought captive. Make it obedient to Christ. You're called to put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, and lust. And by the spirit alive and at work within you, you can do this. Romans 8.13. So perhaps you need to take some extreme action. No gouging out eyes, please. But maybe there is something that needs to get cut out of your life to help you walk the path of purity. Maybe there's something your transformed heart perhaps today is ready to put on the altar. Is there, is there a show you just shouldn't watch? There are plenty of shows that will not help you. Is there a place you shouldn't go? There are plenty of places that will not help you. Are there people you just shouldn't be around? Yeah, people who won't help you. Decide now. Start where you are. Change the ending. Perhaps you started and failed. I'm sorry. Perhaps you started and failed so many times, it all just seems hopeless. Right? Maybe the dramatic act for you then is to bring somebody else into the story with you. Like, sure, it is hard to talk about this stuff. Nobody, nobody wants to. It would be gutsy, but it's not as gutsy as gouging out an eye. Having somebody to walk with you through this, somebody to pray with you, somebody to keep pace with you, somebody to challenge you and ask you, how are you doing to check in with you? That can be really powerful. This could be the thing that would change the game for you. Now, if you don't know someone you could walk with, reach out to our pastoral support team in confidence. They are good with confidence. Start where you are. Find some help. Change the ending. Now, perhaps you're holding your ground, right? But perhaps you could use some peers to share notes and tactics with as you fight this battle because it's a battle that's going to last your life. Why not pick one or two people and dare to open up to them on how this is really going for you? Or ask us to help you establish a very small group. Find other people who are looking for something similar. Start where you are. Change the ending. A lot of heavy stuff this morning. We're going to have some time for questions. Um, so do feel free to submit and 